Okay, guys, so we're going to keep going through 1 Kings 17. Katie did a great job last week um, just going through this chapter. It was a, if you haven't heard it, it's online. It's a great message. And so, but we're going to keep going. So if you have your Bibles for a moment, turn to 1 Kings 17, and I just want to read verse 1. And verse 1 said, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except at my word. So what we have with verse 1 is the introduction of this guy named Elijah. And the lives of Elijah, and then his successor was a guy named Elisha. It covers about one-third of the books of First and Second Kings. And not only that, but... But if you look at the way First and Second Kings are structured, it's like an arrow pointing to a climax, and that climax is Elijah and Elisha. So if you look at the way the books are structured, this is called a chiasm, where it's actually the center point is the main point, and the ending and the beginning concentrically are leading towards it. And so what you have is from 1 Kings chapter 1 to 2 Kings chapter 25, these sections that are gradually pointing towards the ministries of Elijah and Elisha with the culminating chapter, the climactic chapter of the entire two books is 2 Kings chapter 2, where Elisha succeeds Elijah, and Elijah is captured in a chariot up to heaven. And there's a reason why that's the case. And as we're looking at this, why are Elijah and Elisha so important? We're going to spend a few weeks learning from them, but what and why? To answer that, I want us to jump for a moment to the New Testament, where this angel named Gabriel shows up to John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, and gives him a prophecy about his coming son. And in that, in Luke chapter 1, verse 13 and 17, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Because remember, physically, she wasn't supposed to be able to have a son. She was barren. She was too old. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be a Nazarite, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, which if a, if a baby in a womb is not a human being, is not a full person, how do they get filled with the Spirit? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before him. Now, here I highlighted this. In the spirit and power of who? Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. But what does that mean? And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel Gabriel says that John's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, what does that mean? 
When, when you look in Luke's writings, when Luke talks about this supernatural, spiritual, miraculous activity, Luke often connects the word spirit and the word power. The spirit, the person of the spirit is the cause and the power is the effect. And you find this connection all throughout Luke's writings. For instance, Luke 1.35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Do you see that? Spirit and power. Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. See the Spirit and the power. Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power. So what Luke 1.17 is saying, the spirit and power of Elijah, is that in a similar way that the spirit rested on Elijah, in a similar way he's going to rest on John the Baptist. In a similar way that Elijah would exercise power, John the Baptist would exercise power. But unto what? Why? What is the purpose the angel tells us in Luke 1, 16 and 17? Here it is, Luke 1, 16. And he will what? What's the verb? Everybody say it out loud. Turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Why? To what? Say it again. Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the word repent means to turn, the Hebrew word. It means to turn. And the aim of John's ministry was repentance. But what was it that John was empowered to turn? A heart. To turn the what? The hearts. You have to understand how powerful that is. Because there's almost nothing in the universe that tries to resist God like a human heart. Right? The harder something is, the less responsive it is. You know, if I, my, my skin is soft, and so there's a, there's a responsiveness. There's a, I can feel it. This podium is hard. There's no response. There's no give, right? Often, the Bible talks about the hardness of the human heart. It's one of the great mysteries the Bible talks about. For instance, 1 Chronicles 36, 13. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. But what happens when you don't just have a couple of people in a community whose hearts are hard, but what happens when hardness of heart becomes ingrained? It becomes a part of the culture. It becomes a part of society. It literally becomes the overriding thing. Right? Mass repentance 
the mass turning of hearts was at the center of Elijah's ministry. And we're going to look at this later. In the middle of a confrontation with Israel, Elijah prays for them. But what does he pray? 1 Kings 18.37 Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are what? Turning their hearts back again. Malachi prophesied that Elijah is going to come again. And when he comes, mass repentance will take place. Just like it happened in 1 Kings 18. In fact, Malachi draws from the same words of Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 18 and says, oh, it's going to happen again. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That phrase, before the great and terrible or great and awesome day of the Lord comes, is only used by two prophets by Malachi and by Joel. They're the only two guys that use that phrase. They land the fulfillment of their prophecy right before the Lord returns. And he will what? Everybody say, turn the hearts. Repentance. Of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, and so forth. Now, John the Baptist was the initial fulfillment, the partial fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. He was not the final, complete fulfillment. Jesus said that prophecy has two fulfillments. Many prophecies in the Old Testament have two fulfillments, an initial partial fulfillment usually related to Jesus' first coming, and then this final fulfillment related to his second coming. And Jesus said in Matthew 17, 11 and 12, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and will restore all things. Now that phrase, restore all things, is from the Greek Old Testament, the quote from that Malachi prophecy. But Jesus says he's, it's going to happen in the future. This is after John the Baptist. But then Jesus said, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. Right? How hard, in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, how hard were people's hearts? Right? In the days of John the Baptist, Israel had had 400 years of a spiritual famine. How hard were their hearts after 400 years of that? And the question is, in some of the darkest periods of history, what did the Spirit do through Elijah and John the Baptist to initiate mass repentance? And why was repentance in the days of Elijah and John so important? And this is my key. It's not just an issue of what happened, but when it happened. It's not just to repent so you can have a better life and you're nicer to your spouse and you love God more. 
It's because in those generations, they were on the verge of a massive divine visitations. Look at what it says in Luke 1.17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Why? To what? Everybody say to make ready. To make ready for the Lord a people, say it out loud, prepared. To make ready is this Greek verb, hetoimadzo, and it means to make ready, it means to prepare. Often it's used to prepare for someone's arrival. And it's used all over the New Testament. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore you must almost be, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Philemon 22. At the same time prepare, hetoimadzo. A guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Revelation 19.7, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The same Greek verb. But there's two verbs that Gabriel uses. To make ready and then the verb prepared. And that verb prepared is a different Greek verb. It means to construct, to equip, to furnish, to make ready, or to prepare. It's not used a lot of places, but where it is used, it's often in the context of building and preparing a structure so that somebody can dwell in it. And often in the context of God's indwelling presence, God's visitation, God's coming. Two examples. In the Greek Old Testament, in Isaiah 43, 7, this same Greek word is used. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created or whom I prepared for my glory, whom I formed and made. Hebrews 9, verse 1 and 2, for a tent was prepared, the same Greek word. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence it is called the holy place. So what does it mean that John was going to prepare a people for the Lord's coming? Listen to me. Not only did, un, when Jesus shows up on the scene, unprepared people don't just miss it, they resist it. To the extent that people were prepared by John, they, to that extent they embraced Jesus. To the extent they were not prepared by John, they refused to be. To that extent they resisted Jesus. I'm not the guy that said it. Luke said it. Luke 7, 29 to 30. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Why? Because they had not been baptized by John. We call this a forerunner 
ministry, running ahead and preparing the way for his arrival. Let's look at it one more time. Luke 1, 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, when the angel Gabriel says, John, he says, in the spirit and power of whom? Who is it? Elijah. Why not say in the spirit and power of Moses? Why not say in the spirit and power of King David? Why not say in the spirit and power of Jeremiah? Or of Daniel? Why Elijah? Elijah's life is unique. It is unique in that it shows, it's a pattern. How do you lead a mass of people into repentance? How do you prepare the way of the Lord? It's a pattern. And it's a pattern that is, although it's applicable all the time, it's most applicable when history is at its darkest moments. For John the Baptist, anything less than fully imitating Elijah. Now for John, he, he even dressed like Elijah. You guys know that? He really did. So did Lonnie Frisbee, by the way. A full imitating of Elijah's life would not have been sufficient to turn people's hearts back to God and prepare them for the Lord. If that's true for the John the Baptist, is it any less true for us? The days of Ahab, Jezebel, and Baal worship, listen to me, when you've got Ahab, Jezebel, and Baal worship, you need a response like Elijah. Anything less is not sufficient. In the days of Caesar and Herod and the Pharisees, you needed a response like John the Baptist who imitated Elijah. Anything less was not sufficient. Is and what, what I want you to, and I put this up in the notes, do our days demand anything less? So we are going to study Elijah. God is emphasizing him. God is emphasizing him. I remember um, in the mid-1980s, I, when I was just a young teenager... I was in the backyard of our house and I had my Bible open and I had a devotional by a man named Watchman Nee who was an underground Chinese church leader. And the verse I had open in my Bible before I opened my devotional was Matthew 16, 19. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I went, the verse was just struck me. I didn't totally know what it meant. 
But the wild part is, after I read my, after my Bible reading, after I read that verse, I opened up my devotional. The devotional for that day, because it was a daily devotional, was Matthew 16, 19, which was the, or was, I'm sorry, was Matthew 18, 18, which was the exact same verse as Matthew 16, 19. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Watchman Nee's comment about it was this. In this, quote, the church should be heaven's outlet, the channel of release for heaven's power, the medium of accomplishment of God's purpose. Many things have accumulated in heaven because God has not yet found his outlet on earth. The church has not yet prayed. I read that and my heart just started burning. And all, you know, all of a sudden, I had a vision. Now, sometimes when you have a vision, it's like a faint impression. Sometimes when you have a vision, it's like watching a movie. And sometimes when you have a vision, it's like you're in the movie. Mine was the latter. I felt myself completely caught up into heaven. And I saw storehouses one storehouse was the size of a large city. And one storehouse was like an armory full of different types of weaponry, things for war. Another was, um, it was uh, another storehouse with just golden shelves and all of this intricate beauty. It was instruments and sheets of music, things for worship. Other storehouse, it was like a medicinal uh, repository for things for healing. And it was just storehouses. And the Lord showed, began showing me one after another. And then, and I realized that's, in a sense, the accumulation of God's blessing for us. And then I saw oceans, massive oceans, and they were held back by floodgates like the size of Himalayan mountain ranges. And I knew that these oceans were the accumulation of God's power. And I thought of verses like in Malachi where God said, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And I was completely overwhelmed by what I was seeing. I just, I, I, all I could think of is when Jesus said, pray, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. You know, what is that, what is, when that is answered, how? And I knew in the vision, I knew intrinsically that there was a point in the future when God will open every floodgate and every storehouse. There won't be any closed floodgates and any closed doors to any storehouses. It's all going to be opened onto this planet. And I said, Lord, when? And the Lord said two things to me in this vision. He said, the tears of my, my children are the sign of its nearness. Now, at that time, I had no idea what God was talking about. I didn't know about verses in Joel 2.12 you know, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. I didn't know about verses in James 4, 
lament, weep, and mourn. I didn't know that God was talking about repentance, wholehearted repentance at the time. The second thing that God said to me, he said, 1 Kings 18 is the map to that destination. 1 Kings 18 is the map to that destination. I'm just a young teenager. I, 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 I didn't even know what the chapter was when I looked it up. Oh, that's the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel and fire. I had no idea what that really meant, though. The vision shook me to my core, but I didn't really understand it. Years later, I'm fast forwarding probably almost a decade, 1993, I'm in living in India, I'm with Youth with a Mission, a city called Kalapur, I'm the only white guy on the team, everybody else are Indians, um, we had an apartment at the, at the center point. There were four slums that we were kind of in the middle of. And we were doing evangelism, worship, prayer, ministry, with, you know, look, help working on a church with a church that was at the, the, the edge of the city trying to plant churches in the middle of the city. And they had been unsuccessful previously. Part of our routine, every single day for five days a week, every morning we did an hour of worship, we, then we did an hour of prayer, then we did an hour of Bible study, then we had lunch, and then we did door-to-door -door evangelism in the afternoons. Every day, five days a week. And the team leader asked me if I wanted to teach the next couple of Bible studies. So I asked, I prayed, I said, Lord, what should I teach? And I felt like the Lord said, I want you to teach on Elijah in 1 Kings 18. So I remember we were in the, out in the courtyard, we were in this large tent to provide shade, and all the team is there. And I shared with them, probably one of the first times in my entire life I ever told anybody the floodgate vision, the storehouse vision. I just kept it in my own heart. And then after sharing the vision and the word that 1 Kings 18 is the map to that destination, I opened up my Bible and I started teaching. Now, I didn't understand it a lot, but we were reading the verses and talking about them. But as we taught about Elijah in 1 Kings 18, physically, my hands start burning like with fire and electricity. It's physical. And I, I'm, I'm having trouble talking. I'm completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what that meant. I knew it was the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was tangible. We finished the Bible study, and, and then my hands were back to my hands and arms were back to normal. We went and bowed our day, and I thought, what was that? And I almost felt like the Lord was saying, I'm, I was just, I'm, Sam, I want to confirm the message. 1993. 2003, 10 years later. I remember the Lord just whispered to me, it's time for you to understand Elijah. 
So I, got, I bought commentaries, devotionals, got my study Bible, got my uh, computer, and I started 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. I started studying and studying and studying and writing notes, writing notes, writing notes. And it was like God, it was like a fog lifted off of my mind. It was like God just started bringing clarity to every verse, every word. I ended up out of that, and nobody knows I'm doing this. You have to understand, I'm not telling anybody. It's just between me and God. I ended up getting so excited, I wrote a 94-page manuscript, a book called The Spirit and Power of Elijah. And nobody knows I did this. When I was done, when I was near the end, I remember I was in the, uh, the living room where, where we were living. At, I think it was at Brooks' parents' house at the time. Yeah, I was at Brooks' parents' house. I was in the living room and I, and I was overwhelmed by this. Preparing the way of the Lord. Mass repentance. God doing what he did with Elijah and John the Baptist again. But this time for his second coming. Not his first coming. And I said, Lord, is this true? Is it, did my imagination run away with me or is this all true? And in that moment... I, I, was, it, I wasn't expecting to hear God's voice, but in that living room, I literally heard his voice. It wasn't audible, but if there's something right under audible, it was that. And here's what he said to me. A day is coming when the sound of mourning will be more prevalent in the church than the sound of singing. A day is coming when words of confession will be more prevalent in the church than words of preaching. And I thought, God, all we do is sing and preach. What, what will it look like when it's more common to hear people weeping, mourning, and wailing and to hear people confessing than singing and preaching? We're talking mass repentance. You know, in the first, in, in, the, in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, you guys ever read that? Do you know that there is one repeated command? Seven times? What is it? Repent. There's actually not a command to sing, or not a command to evangelize, not a command to serve the poor. We're supposed to do all of that. But why, in that context, was the one command repent? About two hours later, after the Lord spoke that to me, I had to get on my computer for something. And you know how ad banners show up? An ad banner popped up the moment I opened my browser. And the ad banner said this, right in front of my eyes. The return of the king coming soon, starring Elijah. 
And I went, what? And I looked at it again, and it was it's, it actually starring Elijah Wood. And it was the bad for the Lord of the Rings, the third vo- episode. But I knew, yes, it's a movie, but I knew this was not a coincidence. God was taking that ad banner for an upcoming movie, but he said, Sam, it's a prophetic message. The return, Elijah uh, Wood was Frodo, right? He was the main star. The return of the king starring Elijah. And I knew that God had confirmed again. A couple of weeks later, no, it was, it was a couple of days later that Don Shortino, pastor at Anaheim Vineyard, he, con- he, he actually called me and he said, hey, the, the fall um, 20, the, this was 2000 and, 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 uh, 2003, He said, the fall semester of home groups is coming up. And he said, do you want to lead one this fall? And I said, Don, I'd love to do a Bible study, a Wednesday night Bible study. He said, on what? I said, could I do it on 1 Kings chapter 18 on Elijah? Literally do an entire fall on just that. He said, oh, that sounds fantastic. Now, I'd never, I still hadn't told anybody, right, about this. He said, that sounds fantastic. So, later that evening, I started printing out my notes, and I was at Brooke's parents' house, Craig and Maria's house, and Craig walks by, I'm at my computer, and he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm printing out my notes, I'm going to teach a, a, a small group Bible study, and he sees, I'm printing out this sheet that says, the spirit and power of Elijah, this title sheet, and he looks at it, he goes, oh, you must have got Lance's email. Lance Pitluck, the pastor. I said, Lance's email, I, don't, I literally don't know what you're talking about. He said, the spirit of Elijah, you, that's because of Lance's email. I said, Craig, I literally don't know what you're talking about. I don't get emails from Lance. I'm not, my, my father-in-law was on staff at the church, facilities manager. I said, I don't get emails from Lance. I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, you really don't? I said, I don't. He pulls up his laptop opens up his email and says, read this. A week before this moment, Lance sent an email to the staff at Anaheim Vineyard. And the email said, I was praying and the Lord told me to ask for the spirit of Elijah to come on the church. I don't know what that means. Do any of you have any insights on this? You have to, and I have shared this with nobody. And I looked at that, and I literally couldn't believe what I was seeing. And you guys, how many of you know Lance Pitluck? This isn't language that Lance, or in those days, the staff, or the church talked about. It just isn't, right? So I I actually responded to Lance's email, even though I was not a recipient. And I said, Lance, I have insight, and I attached a 94-page manuscript. <laughs> Never heard back from Lance on that again. <laughs> T- 
Two weeks later, two weeks later, I'm at, uh, we're at a Sunday morning service at the Anaheim Vineyard, and worship is happening. And I still haven't, like, shared this, except Don Shortino, and I told him, but they hadn't even announced the groups yet. Do you understand that? And I'm not aware that anybody at Anaheim staff talked about Lance's email or that made its way anywhere, right? So we're in worship two weeks later, Sunday morning, Anaheim Vineyard, and the Lord speaks to me in the middle of worship and says, there's going to be a prophecy on Elijah this morning. I said, oh, you want me to give one, finally. And the Lord says, not you. I am telling you beforehand so that when it comes, you will know this is me and you won't doubt it. I said, okay. Worship ends, it's quiet. And my heart's kind of beating because I really was hoping I heard God. Right? All of a sudden, on the other side of the sanctuary, anybody know Dave, knew Dave Dickey? Dave Dickey stands up, and you know how he, used, he would shout. And he retells the story of Elijah, 1 Kings 18, the drought, and the storm that breaks the drought. And then he, tell, and then he prophesies to the church to walk in the footsteps of Elijah. And I mean, he literally retells it all in a prophecy. And I, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. So after the end of the church, I walk up to Dave and I said, Dave, has anybody talked with you? He even talked about the spirit of Elijah. And has anybody talked with you about 1 Kings 18, Elijah, any of that. Has anybody? He goes, he goes, Sam, nobody. He says, I didn't want to give the prophecy. I thought it was out of line. I, it almost felt like, why am I repeating a chapter to a bunch of people in church? He says, I, I, I was almost not going to do it, but I couldn't contain it. He says, and I just thought it's out of place. It's weird. It didn't seem to fit. And that was in 2003. I want to show you guys something. I'm going to walk over to my bag. So in 2011, I was, my wife and I were living in Kansas City. I was on the staff of International House of Prayer and the staff of this ministry called The Call, working with this man named Lou Engel. And, and it's a long story, but I was on a 21-day water fast Lou, I don't think, I don't think he fasts more than he eats. Um, but we've, we had already written a book the year pri prior called um, A House That Contends, A Look at Paul and the Prayer Movement. And Lou and I felt like the Lord wanted us to write a second book together. And we wrote this book called A Moment to Confront, A Look at Elijah and the Prophetic Movement. And we decided, we didn't decide if we were going to publish a book or not. We decided to take a couple of weeks and to write down what God had given us and to see, to look at it and to say, Lord, is this you or is this not you? So we, we didn't tell anybody. You have to understand that. Nobody knew that Lou and I were doing that. 
Because we didn't want to put something out there if we decided, oh, that's not God. So I'm days into this, about a few days into this, and at that time, my wife and I were running um, a school called The Call School, a ministry training school in Kansas City. And one of the students sends me an email. And in the email, she said, Sam, I had a dream last night. I don't remember if it was a dream or a vision. I, I can't, it was one of the two. Well, I had two. This was one of them. I don't remember. She said, I had a dream or vision. And she said, in it, I hear a voice that said, ask me for the spirit of Elijah. And she said, I kept asking and asking because I knew that I had to experience the Spirit the way Elijah experienced the Spirit. And she sends me this email. I'm literally working on my notes for this book as I read this email. And she had no idea. Almost within the same day, we had another ministry called Strike Teams, and we had a team in, in uh, Concord... Charlotte, is that South Carolina or North Carolina? North Carolina. And one of our team members sends me an email. And she says, I had a dream. Oh, it was Jen. Jen said, I had a dream last night, Sam. And in the dream, these, I had my two spiritual mothers, these two women in my life that discipled me, I was standing in front of my two spiritual mothers. And I had grabbed their hands and I was pleading with them, give me the mantle of Elijah. Give me the mantle of Elijah. And she said, I felt like I had to have the mantle of Elijah. And she says, I don't know if this dream means anything to you, but I wanted to send it to you. Two dreams, two people, two different cities sent to me within the same 24 hours while I am working on a book about Elijah. And I knew God was saying, Sam, this is me. This is real. And we are going to spend some time. Katie, what you said was fantastic last week. And we're going to spend more time looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. But when we head into this, my hope is, is that it does not just become a sermon or Bible studies for us. I'm telling you, we are going to imitate, live out. We are going to do what those two prophets did. It's really, really important. Amen? Amen.